0: Good evening, King's Academy. How are we doing this evening? Dude, aren't those videos super sick? I love those things. Those are awesome. If you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 4. Turn to John chapter 4. That's where we're going to be this evening. Now, we're going to be covering quite a bit of text this evening, but I know you can do it. Because this evening, we get to continue our journey to uncover and unpack what truth is. We looked at the first time we were together and unpacked the character of God. All-powerful, intentional, loving creator that is holy yet chooses to dwell with those he has created. We looked at the truth of God's word, that it's not a self-help book or cool opinions or awesome hashtagable verses, but it is the very living, breathing word of God. It is inerrant. It has no error and has full authority to dictate how we live our lives. And from cover to cover, it proclaims the name of Jesus. And that is where we land on tonight. And tonight we're gonna ask and seek to answer the most important question that's ever been asked in the entirety of human history. And that question is, who is Jesus? What is the truth about Jesus? And we're gonna be mainly discovering this in chapters four through six of John, But to get there, I just want to walk us through chapter 2 and chapter 3 with a little overview of what Jesus has said and what Jesus has done and what is he proclaiming about himself. But before we dive into this most important life-changing of questions, would you just pray with me? Heavenly Father, God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the truth of it. God, I pray this evening... Wherever we're at, and our opinions and our views of you. God, could we just put those on the bench just for the next 30 minutes? God, and let you put on display who you are, Jesus. God, I pray as I teach, God, would I teach with the honor and reverence that your word deserves? Holy Spirit, would you move in this room? God, I know some of us are tired. God, I just pray as we etch through and dissect the most important of questions in human history, would you just light a curiosity in us to sit at your feet and discover who you are according to you and you alone? (coughs) Jesus, we love you. And all God's people said amen. So I'm gonna kinda do an overview of chapters two and chapter three and then we're gonna get to chapter four. So in chapter 2, Jesus begins, he comes to the scene and he begins to start off his earthly ministry. And how he does this, similar to what he does a lot in your Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he performs a miracle. And I love the first miracle he performs, he performs it at a wedding, I think so often we think Jesus is this kind of like sterile, lack of personality guy. No, like on the pages of the Bible, his first miracle is done at a wedding where there's dancing and feasting and singing and joy and laughter and people wanted to be around Jesus. This man's personality was captivating. You wanted to be around him. And at this wedding, what ends up happening is the bride and groom, their family, they run out of wine. Now to us, we're like, wow, that's not big a deal. Just go buy more. But the thing is, wine was a a symbol of status. It was like, man, if you ran out of wine, it was actually a great shame to your family. And so Mary, Jesus' mom, realizing what's happening, also knowing who Jesus is, that he's not just some guy, but the Son of God goes up to Jesus and goes, Jesus... Can you help out this family? Can you help out my friends? Is there any way you could make wine just show up? (laughs) And Jesus is like, it's not my time yet. Then I can just see Mary and Jesus having this no words, eye-locking interaction, and Jesus going, okay. And then Mary says to the servants, whatever Jesus tells you to do, do it. So they bring these pitchers of water And Jesus turns these pitchers of water into wine, and they serve it at this party. And what's crazy is tradition is they would serve the best wine first at a wedding. Because people could still taste and be cognizant at that point. But then as the wedding went on, they kind of gave them the leftovers. But then as they began to sip this wine that Jesus has created out of water, they're going, why did you save the best wine for last? Why is this Miracle such a big deal in the life of Jesus. Because Jesus knows, the moment I perform this miracle, everything's going to change. I can't go back. My mission to save humanity is going to be on full display. And Jesus chooses, out of great love, to perform this miracle and begin this journey to rescue us back to himself. Then we continue in John chapter two, and Jesus goes into the temple, and the temple was a place where people would come and they would worship God, which is awesome. It's kinda like chapel, we come and we worship God, but when Jesus walked through the doors of the synagogue, he looked around and there were money changers, there were shop owners that were ripping people off. You see, people need to provided sacrifice to pay for their sin and their wrongdoing, but what these money changers and merchants were doing, they were charging double, triple, quadruple what was required and making people who had very little pay costs they couldn't pay. And Jesus, seeing that these individuals were creating a barrier between those created in his image and their creator, he goes full haywire on them. He flips tables, tosses money bags over, and proclaims, Not in the house of my father. Why is this such a big deal? It's because he is proclaiming that because of me, there should be no barrier between the God, the creator of the universe, and the ones whom he has created. Not only that, he's proclaiming his own being, Jesus himself, to be the very dwelling place of God. See, up until this time, the dwelling place of God was known to be the temple. But Jesus, when he clears the temple, is proclaiming, I am the place now where God dwells. And then in verses 23 through 25, listen to this. It says this in chapter 2. Now when he was in Jerusalem at Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name. Which seems like a good thing. Everyone's seeing this happen. They go to Passover. They begin talking about Jesus, and they begin to believe what Jesus is teaching about himself, that he is the way, that he is the new dwelling place of God. But look at what Jesus' response is. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them. So he wasn't fully getting on board with what their belief was. Why? For he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning men, for he knew what was in man. In other words, Jesus knew there were circulating differences of opinion about who he actually was. Like in the video, some people were saying he's a good teacher. He's a miracle worker. He's a good guy. I have a question. How many of you are super interested in sports? Where are my sports people at? Okay, okay. On three, I want you to tell me the best sports team of all time. One, two, three. Okay, Cowboys, Lakers, Warriors, okay? All you Warriors people, my dogs. But let me tell you, did all of you say the same thing? No, you all had differing opinions. To my movie watchers in here, what is the greatest movie of all time? Tell me on three. One, two, three. Okay, again, did you all give me the same answer? No, none of you said Princess Bride. You're all wrong. But think about it. You all gave different opinions. Like me and my wife and my wife's family had this debate about a year ago about who the greatest songwriter is of all time. Ladies, who is she? Taylor Swift. Come on, come on right? But we all have, my man's like, heck no, go heiress, get a friendship bracelet. But we all have differing opinions on those topics. And Jesus is realizing within the crowds of people, there are so many differing opinions of who he could be. Some believing that he was a good teacher. And maybe some of you have differing opinions of who Jesus is. Maybe you think He's just a good teacher or a good guy or just another dead guy in history, only he's not dead. That he has some kind of connection with God, but he couldn't have been God himself. All of us come to the table with these different opinions, but what we see about Jesus is he leaves no middle ground to who he is. He doesn't give us any room to debate on who he is and who he claims himself to be. He claims himself to be the truth and the way and the life and no one comes to the Father. No one has access to God except through him. So before we continue, we need to be honest with how we answer that question, who is Jesus? Because everything in our lives hinges on how we answer that question. And we're not the only people to wonder this. In John chapter three, we meet a man who's a Pharisee, a prominent teacher of the Bible at that time. His name was Nicodemus. And Nicodemus began to see the miracles that Jesus was doing. The blind seeing, the lame walking, the miracle at Cana with the wedding. He begins to hear all of this and he realizes something. Something's different about Jesus. There's a power that comes out of Jesus that Nicodemus, in all his years of studying the Bible and doing ministry, he had never seen before. So, what Nicodemus does, he organizes a meeting with Jesus at nighttime. Because still he's like, I, I don't want people to know, like I'm full, fully following this guy. Uh, I don't know what people will think of me, but I still need to discover who this man is. So Nicodemus meets with Jesus at nighttime, and Nicodemus calls him rabbi. Nicodemus had this opinion of Jesus that he must be a good teacher, that he must be from God, because he's able to do all these miracles. But Jesus flips the script on Nicodemus and says, I, I am much more than you could ever imagine. And that's where we get John three sixteen, when Jesus says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son himself, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Jesus flips the script on Nicodemus. He looks at Nicodemus and says, hey, I know you know your whole Bible, but it's not about that. I know you think I'm a good teacher, but that's not enough. I know you think I'm a a rabbi who's a miracle worker. That's great, but that's not it. I am the son of the living God, that whoever believes in me as the son of God, the almighty, will not perish, but have eternal life. And friends, this is where we find Jesus in chapter four of your Bible. So look at chapter four, verses seven through 14. We're gonna see Jesus have another interaction with a woman at a well. So look at this, John chapter four, verse seven. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For this, disciples had gone away in the city to buy food. So it's just Jesus and this Samaritan woman, and we'll get to that in a second at this well. And she said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink of water from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Then the woman said to him, "'Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, "'and the well is deep. "'Where are you going to get living water? "'Are you greater than our father Jacob, their patriarch who started the nation of Israel? "'He gave us this well and drank from it himself "'as his sons did and his livestock. "'This well has been in their family for generations. "'And Jesus said to her, "'Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again,' "'pointing at the well.' but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water I will give him will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So what is happening in this interaction? Jesus by himself, Jesus, a Jewish individual at a well with a Samaritan woman. Why is that a big deal? Samaritans and Jews hated each other, hated each other. They didn't interact ever. People would go 20 miles around Samaria where this woman is from if they were Jewish to simply avoid walking through the city. They wanted nothing to do with them. And yet Jesus interacts with her. Jesus sees her where she's at and doesn't look at her as an other. He looks at her as a beloved child of God. And she is at this well in the heat of the day. She's there at noon. Why is that a big deal? Well, because... I've been to Israel in the process when it's really hot, and let me tell you, you don't go out in the sun in the afternoon, it's blazing hot. You would go in the morning to get water, but she's there in the heat of the day by herself. Why? Because she is a woman that has a very shady reputation. She is a woman who has a lot of baggage. She is a woman who has a lot of sin and rebellion, and it's known throughout her town, and so she goes as an outcast to gather water water, and the question Jesus asks is, will she give him a cup of water, and then makes two claims about himself. In verse 10, he says, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and you would have given him water, Jesus making this statement that if you knew who I was, you would realize I am who I've said I am, the son of the living God. And then two, he proclaims himself to be the source of living water. That in him and him alone can full refreshment and life be found. Jesus is proclaiming to this woman that he and only he can provide the fullness of life, meaning and hope. And you know what? He does this not to someone who has their life together, not to someone who's saying all the right things, not to someone who has a good reputation. He's proclaiming this to someone who's been outcasted by community. He's saying this to someone who's holding and understands the very real reality of the sin that they carry. Look at me. I don't know how you came to camp this week. I don't know the sin you might be hiding that I was hiding with all my strength when I was in junior high. But look at me, he looks at you right now in this chapel and says, I'm here to offer you living an abundant life. Not to cast you out as a means of you could work your way back to me, but I'm gonna pursue you and it is to this woman of no reputation, he says, I am the Messiah. I am the chosen one, I am the son of God. Friends, Jesus looks at you this week and looks at you and says, I know what you've done, I know your history, I know your past, and I'm not here to heap shame on you, I'm here to exchange your shame for my life. I'm here to exchange your weight for my freedom. I'm here to break bonds of slavery That is the Jesus we see in this text. And then verse 25, she realizes that she is not speaking to a mere man, but something much greater about Jesus than she could ever imagine. Verse 25, she says, the woman said, I know the Messiah is coming. He was called the Christ. Where is he when he comes? And then Jesus does this epic mic drop moment in verse 26. He says, I who you speak with am he. How many of you have heard of the story and the narrative and the historical rundown of the burning bush in Moses? How many of you have heard it? Right? When Moses looks at a burning bush and asks the question, God, who do I say sent me? What does God say? I am sent you. What is Jesus proclaiming to this woman? I am the great I am, I am the God of the universe. I'm the one that has spoken since the beginning, Jesus is saying. I'm the one who's been anointed by God to restore creation. I'm the one that can bring living water and fullness of life. Friends, Jesus and who he is is the only person, the only God who can offer you abundant life and freedom. The second truth about Jesus is that he and God are one, They're one and the same. In John 5, verses 1 through 16, we see Jesus heal a man who's lame. In other words, he couldn't walk. Now, it wasn't like he couldn't walk for a couple years. This dude could not walk for 38 years. That's crazy. 38 years. And so back in the day, there was this pool in Jerusalem called the Pool of Siloam. And what people would do if they were experiencing an illness, or they couldn't see, or they couldn't hear, or they couldn't walk, they would sit by this pool, or in this case, he would lay by the pool, and he would wait, because there was a rumor that this water would then bubble up, and when this water bubbled up, he could jump into the water and be healed. And think about it, this man couldn't walk for 38 years, and for 38 years, he would drag himself to the pool and try to get well, and again and again, for 38 years, he would get out of the water and still be lame, and Jesus sees this man, and he walks up to him on the Sabbath. Now, what is Sabbath? Sabbath is a day that was set aside by the law of God where no one was to do any work. Dude, the Sabbath sounds pretty awesome. I don't know about you. I can get down on the Sabbath. No work. Count me in. Everyone's like, do we have homework on the Sabbath? Ask your teachers, but You didn't do any work on the Sabbath, but the problem was the point of Sabbath was for people to take an entire day and enjoy God, enjoy what God has created, enjoy good food, enjoy good community, and just enjoy the presence of God. But what had happened was the pastors of the day, the priests and the Levites, the scribes and the Pharisees had completely got it twisted. They viewed Sabbath as a way of making them look better than other people. Oh, you do that on the Sabbath? We don't, we're more holy than you. They made it a performative thing. Oh, you go for walks on Sabbath? That's work, I'm gonna take a nap because I'm better than you. And so the law had gotten completely twisted. The whole point of Sabbath had been warped. And so when Jesus comes onto the scene and he walks up to this man at the pool of Siloam and asks him, do you want to be healed? And Jesus heals this man, and he gets up, and he walks. Can you imagine? You haven't used your feet for 38 years. And he picks up his mat, and he dances, and he walks off. And you know what the scribes and the Pharisees say? They're like, how dare you? It's the Sabbath. You can't heal on the Sabbath. These guys are a little uptight, if I have to be honest. They had completely missed it. And what's so funny, actually, if you were to go to Israel today, and it's on Saturday, Friday at 6 p.m. to Saturday at 6 p.m., they have what's called Sabbath elevators. Picture like Elf when he hits all the buttons. Like that's what a Sabbath elevator is. You get in and you go to every floor. Because pushing a button is work. That's wild. But that's what the Pharisees had done. And friends, they completely missed the miracle that was right in front of of their eyes and it was here after this moment where jesus makes a profound statement regarding who he is in verse 17 he says my father is working until now and i myself am working my father god is working up until now so i myself am working in this statement jesus is claiming about himself that he and the father are one that Jesus and God are one in the same. You cannot separate them. And this claim riles the religious leaders so much that it's after this point they go, you know what? We gotta kill him. No one can claim that. We have to kill him. Now let's dive, if you have your Bibles, now turn to chapter five, verses 19 through 24 where Jesus continues to make this claim about himself. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Son does, the Son does likewise. Again, him and God, one. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. The greater works than these he will show him so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father or God who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who has sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from eternal death to eternal life. Jesus proclaims he can do nothing apart from God. In verse 19, whatever the Father does, I do. We are one in the same. In verse 20, the Father loves the Son. Therefore, Jesus is the full revelation of God's power and God's love for you and for me. In verse 21, it's Jesus because of the power of God that only Jesus can breathe life. And then in verse 24, Jesus makes it abundantly clear that I am the only one because me and God are one that can make dead things live. I am the full embodiment of God's love, Jesus is saying. And you cannot know God. Look at me. You cannot know God apart from knowing Jesus. It's impossible. This is what Jesus is proclaiming about himself. And on top of all that, Jesus, thirdly, the truth of who he is, is the full embodiment and fulfillment of your entire Bible from cover to cover. In John 5, 34, 36, and 37, in 36 he says, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who has sent himself bore witness about me His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. God is saying that the witness, Jesus is saying the witness that you know, based on all of scripture, that God is pointing to Jesus over and over and over again, that he is proclaiming that me, Jesus, am the Savior and am the one God has always pointed you to from cover to cover of your Bible. Jesus is affirming and confirming all the writings of your Old Testament. Friends, the truth of Jesus and who he is is this. He's the only source of abundant life. He's the only source of eternal life. He's the only one who can make dead things live. He's the only one who can rescue us out of sin into life. He's the only way we can truly know who God is. And with that, Jesus and God are one. You cannot separate the two. Jesus is God. And not only that, Jesus is the full fulfillment of your entire Bible. Your Bible isn't about you. It's not about me. It's about Jesus from cover to cover. and it leads us to the only conclusion that is right about who Jesus is, that he is Lord. He deserves our full and undivided love and devotion and attention. Guys, this is the most important question you will ever ask. Who is Jesus? As a dad, This is the most important question I can ask my own two daughters. When I was your age in junior high, sitting at Hume Lake Christian Camps, being asked that very same question, who is Jesus? There's only one answer that satisfies and is true, that he is Lord. He is deserving of my whole life that nothing else in all of creation could compare to him. And after tonight, we're going to look at what that means for you and for me. But here's my challenge for you. We've all come with different opinions and viewpoints of who Jesus is, but there's only one truthful and right conclusion. So maybe tonight in your cabin times, you're honest about who Jesus is to you. And we can begin to walk this process of getting to the only true conclusion, if he is the Savior of the world. Can you be honest tonight? That's not a rhetorical question. Can you be honest tonight? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we just come before you. God, I just thank you, Jesus, for who you are. God, that you and the Father are one. That you are the fulfillment of every page of our Bible. Jesus, that you are the only one who can make us alive. You're the only one who produces a hope inside of us. You're the only one who gives us an identity as a son and daughter that never shifts. God, I pray, Lord Jesus, would you do a work in our midst this week? God, that you're not just a good teacher. You're not just a miracle worker. You're not just a name in a book. You are the Lord of all. God, we love you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.